So let's start with this question right here. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where there's no way forward, there's no way out, you're just stuck, you can't fix it? Like a lot of things you think, okay, if I work hard enough and, you know, if things fall just right, then it'll get better. But what do you do when you find yourself in a situation where there's no getting better? It just is what it is. Some of you are there right now, and I know you're there right now because you've told me. You said, would you please pray for me? I feel like every week for the last you know, a few months, I've had somebody stop me and go, okay, here's my situation. Can you pray for me? And I just know if there are that many of you talking to me about it, there's probably three or four times more than that who aren't telling me what's going on in your world, but you're dealing with that too. So um, it's just so hard. It's just so difficult because when you find yourself in a moment, in in an in the meantime kind of moment where there's nothing you can do, then you realize, okay, there's there's no more uh, dreaming about the future and dreaming about things being better or different. You just reach, and maybe this is the terminology you use, you just reach a point where you go, okay, this is my new normal, and this is not going to change. And in my new normal, there are going to be more questions and answers. In my new normal, there's not going to be so much dreaming about the future, a better future, as much as it is just surviving today. But it's where you're at. So, for the next three Sundays, I want to talk about this simple question of what you do when you're in the middle of these in-the-meantime kind of moments. Because when you're there... And we all find ourselves there from time to time. You realize there are some problems that just can't be solved. There's some tensions that just can't be resolved. And maybe for some of you, it's a marriage. It's a marriage where you don't want a divorce. He doesn't want a divorce. You don't want a divorce. She doesn't want a divorce. And it's not that everything's just awful, but it's also not great. And it's certainly not what you envisioned it to be. And you've reached the point where you've decided we've tried everything we know to do. You know, we tried counseling. We tried this. We tried this. Like, we don't want to separate whether it's for the kids or whatever. We're going to stick together. We're committed to sticking together. But, but you just know in your mind, okay, this is never going to be. I just don't think it's ever going to be what I intend for it to be. This is my new normal. What do you do with that when you feel like there's nothing you can do? For some of you, it may be related to your kids. You're watching your kids in a health situation. You're watching your kids in just the direction of their life and, you know, where things are going and the choices they're making, and you're going, that is not what I envisioned for them. They could have experienced so much different, but now they made some decisions that have closed some doors and, you know, kind of locked them into a place where there's nothing that's going to change now. It is what it is. Maybe it's related to their grades. You know, you told them grades matter, grades matter, grades matter. In their senior year of high school, they suddenly realize grades matter. Or their junior year of college, they realize, oh, grades matter, you know. And they, they discovered the thing I've always said I wanted to do with my life, I can't do with my life because I don't have the grades. Who knew? Who knew you had to pass high school chemistry and biology to be a pre-med major? Nobody told me, you know. So, so anyway, it's just one of those deals where, where they're stuck or they're in a marriage relationship maybe and it's not who you would have chosen Maybe you didn't say that, or maybe you did. I don't know. But, but it's not who you would have chosen, and yet there it is now, and you got an extended family that you didn't choose, but you got to figure out how to make all of that work, and that can be difficult. It's just, again, one of those situations where you're going, there's nothing I can do about this, so what do I do when there's nothing that I can do? Maybe it's your health situation or the health situation of someone you love. I've heard these stories a lot. And you're, you're dealing with a health crisis that it's not going to kill you, but it's just going to be chronic and debilitating for the rest of your life. Like, you're just going to deal with it. They can't cure it. They can treat it. But you've just got, it's your new normal. you just got to wake up every day and deal with this for the rest of your life. And it can be so difficult and it can be so discouraging and it can be, you know, in some cases so demoralizing to wake up knowing this is never going to change. This is normal now. For some of you, it's infertility issues. The doctor said, we've tried everything we can do. You're never going to have kids. And you can't do anything to change that. So what do you do in those moments? For others of you, it may be with your professional career. It may be financially. You're in a place where you just can't go back and unwind things enough that it'll ever be what you hoped it would be. 
Financially, you're in a in the meantime kind of moment. You're stuck. What do you do when you're in those situations where there's no way forward, there's no way out, there's nothing that you can do? There are some options in all of those situations. The problem is none of the options are good. And you know up front they're not good, but that doesn't mean you're not tempted to take one, just like I'm not tempted to take one. The options that are so obvious are, well, you can run, you can just quit. In some cases, you can decide to drink or try to medicate your sorrows away. You can become angry and bitter and resentful and jealous, but you know, and again, it doesn't mean we don't take those options, but you know, even if you take those options, that it's not actually going to make the situation better. Those options just make the situation worse. And yet you are tempted to take the options, aren't you? Just like I am. And the reason we're so tempted to do it is because underneath all of that, there are some lies. There's some lies that when you're stuck in an in-the-meantime moment, some lies that you are so tempted to believe, there's some lies that feel so real to you in those moments. For example, when you're dealing with this, this thought pops in your head. I'll never be happy again. You've been in some of those moments, haven't you, where you thought, okay, this is just the way it is. This is a new normal, but I'm never going to be happy again. It's never going to be as good as it used to be. Okay, I just got to adjust and get used to this. But my best days, they're behind me. This thought pops in our head. Well, nothing good can come from this. I've just got to survive it. I've just got to deal with it. But there's not going to be anything good come out of it. As a matter of fact, if you're in the middle of one of these moments right now, I get this. It's so emotional. It can be so painful. It can be so frustrating. And you're sitting there going, I can't believe Matt is talking about this today. But if he stands up there and he does one of those stories from the Bible where somebody had a problem and Jesus came in and fixed it and everything got great, and that's the whole point of this, like you're ready to grab me at the end of this and choke me, aren't you? Because you're like, that's not the way it's working for me. Nothing good is going to come out of my problem, Matt. Don't be telling me something good. I get that. I understand that. It feels that way. And then it also feels this way, that there's no point in continuing. There's just no point in continuing. Some of you are at a point where it is so low that you're thinking it's no point in life continuing. Others of you are thinking, well, there's just no point in trying to make an effort. There's no point in trying to rebound from this. There's no point in trying to restore or reconcile that. There's no point in trying to, you know, figure out how to get out of this or bring something good out of this. No, 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 no. There's no point in doing any of that. There's just no point in making any effort anymore. I'm just going to try to get through this and survive day after day. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no way forward. There is no way out. I understand that. If you've ever been in one of these moments, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever had a friend, and most of us have, who have been stuck in what I would call an in-the-meantime moment, you know exactly what I'm talking about because this is how they felt. And here's the thing. Part of the reason that we feel this way is because we lose sight of what's true. So what I want to do at the very beginning of this series is I want to introduce you to three truths, and I'm going to do it right here, right now. I'm telling you up front, the whole reason I'm telling you now is because these three truths will in no way be emotionally satisfying. These three truths, they may be true. You might argue whether they're true or not. They don't feel true, but they are true. We'll talk more about that as we go along. But they're still not emotionally satisfying. In other words, when you see these, you're not going to go, oh, well, that just makes me feel so much better about everything. But you need to know they're true. So I'm going to introduce them, even though I know they're not really going to be helpful now. They'll be helpful later, but not now. I'm going to go ahead and introduce them. And then I want to tell you a story about somebody in the New Testament who was in an in-the-meantime moment, and everything didn't turn out the way that they hoped it would. That may be more emotionally satisfying to you than anything else to at least know you have company. So here are the truths, first of all. They're very simple. When you're in an in-the-meantime moment, God is not absent, God is not apathetic, and God is not angry with you. 
He's not absent. He feels absent. You're wondering where he is, but God's silence doesn't equal his absence. As a matter of fact, sometimes God does his best work in the biggest messes and the worst brokenness. Now, that doesn't make you feel any better right now. That doesn't make your friends who are dealing with situations feel any better right now. But this really is true. Even though he may not feel like he's there, he is. He is. And you should never confuse life's circumstances with God's character. God promises to be with you. He promises to love you, and he cares for you. Your circumstances in no way counteract that promise. It really is true whether it feels like it. Secondly, God's not apathetic. Here's all I mean by that. Sometimes it feels like you pray and you pray and you pray when you're in the middle of one of these difficult situations and God doesn't do anything. And you wonder, does he even care? I mean, is he even listening? Is he paying any attention? Listen, here's the reality. God is not up in heaven going, I keep getting these whiny prayers from, uh, uh, I can't even remember their name. What's their name? Billy. Yeah, Billy. Billy down there just keeps praying all these whiny prayers about all his problems. Billy, Billy, listen, come here, come here. I'm running a universe. Can you go to the back of the line? They're bigger things. Like, that's not how God feels about this. He's paying attention. It may not feel like it. But he's paying attention. He really does care. And then finally, God's not angry with you. Now, here's why I bring that up. Because we have all been in moments where something happened. And we thought to ourselves, what did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. Maybe you were even told by somebody, you, you did something wrong. You had to have sinned. You had to have done something. We all tend to think this way. I just want to reassure you, God's not angry with you. That's not why you're going through what you're going through. Now, what you're in, you're in the meantime situation. It may be the result of some terrible choices you made. You may have gotten yourself in this mess. It may partly be the result of some choices you made, or it may have nothing to do with the choices you made. But here's what I want you to understand. If you have made choices that have contributed to the situation you're in right now, you need to know this. You're not dealing with all the consequences you're dealing with because God's getting you. God doesn't get anybody. Sin gets people, not God. You're dealing with the consequences because you made some choices that were sinful and are, are unwise, and they always, sin always comes prepackaged with a penalty. Sin always comes prepackaged with some consequences, so you're just reaping what you sowed. It's not God trying to get you. Sin got you. Your own choices got you. He's not letting all this happen because he's angry with you. And you'll see that in just a minute. What I want to do is I want to share with you a story of somebody in the New Testament who found themselves in one of those terrible, what do I do when there's nothing I can do kind of situations. And they had to navigate through all the lies, all the doubts, all the discouragement, all the, all the disappointment, all the things, all the emotions that we all tend to feel when we're in the middle of it. And God's not doing what we want God to do. So Matthew was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was a Jewish man who wrote one of the four independent accounts of Jesus' life. And in Matthew's account, very early on, he tells us about this key figure in the nation of Israel in the first century, and honestly, in the entire plan that God had for the Jewish people. If you grew up around church, you've heard of him. Uh, his name was John the Baptist. That's what we know him as today, but really it just meant John the Baptizer. He was somebody who baptized people. But what you may not realize is John and Jesus were second cousins, and they were only three months apart. John was just three months older than Jesus. And when John grew up, he began a ministry where he was out by the Jordan River in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the desert. John was kind of an eccentric guy. He dressed very eccentrically. He ate some weird stuff. Everything about John was just a little unusual, except the message that he had. And the message that John had for people was crystal clear. So John ends up out at the Jordan River, and he begins to preach and teach to all the Jewish people. And his message is simply, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. 
I'll translate that. Basically, he said, you better change the way you're thinking. You better change the way you're behaving, Jewish people, because the Messiah is on his way. Not like coming in the long time future. Like, he's about to step under the pages of history right now. He's about to show up on the scene. So you better get ready and you better straighten up because God in human flesh is coming. That was his message. And people began to hear this and people began to believe this. And John began to attract these huge crowds out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the desert, who would come and listen to John. And then they did something that was very unusual. As a matter of fact, as far as we know, this is the first time in recorded history this had ever happened. Jewish people had a practice at times where they would immerse or baptize themselves. But for the first time in Jewish history, and as far as we know, for the first time in world history, someone began to baptize someone else. When people began to embrace the message of John and believe that the Messiah was on his way, they would ask John, would you baptize me in the Jordan? And so John began to immerse people into the Jordan River. And the reason folks wanted John to do that was simple. They just wanted to state publicly to everyone, we believe what John's saying, we're going to change the way we think, we're going to change the way we behave, and we're expecting the Messiah to show up any day. So John would teach and teach and baptize and baptize, teach and teach, baptize and baptize. The crowds got to be huge. They were so big it caught the attention of all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They traveled all the way out to the wilderness, to the Jordan River. They sent a group out and said, go figure out what that guy's doing out there because we hear he's gathering a big crowd. So people came out and they began to question John, like, what are you doing? What are you teaching? I mean, everybody was paying attention to John. He was buzz in the entire country. Everybody was talking about him. And then one day as John's teaching, Jesus walks out, and John stops what he's doing, mid-teaching. He points a finger, and he says, everybody look. There he is. I told you he was coming. He's here. There's the Messiah. There's the Lamb of God who's going to pick up and carry away all your sins. He's going to pick up and carry away the sins of the entire world. He's here. And the crowd just begins to buzz. Meanwhile, Jesus walks all the way down to John then, and he says, John, I want you to baptize me. And the whole reason was because Jesus wanted to affirm or reaffirm what John said was true. So he said, I want to publicly identify with what you just said, with your message. And John was like, oh, no, no, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I can't do that. And Jesus said, do what I say, son. So he did. He did. Kind of making that part up a little bit. But basically, that's how it went. So he did. So he baptizes Jesus. And then Jesus gathers his disciples. And Jesus goes on, continues his teaching. And John continues what he's doing. But I'm telling you. John was a really, really important guy. He's such an important guy in the history of the Jewish people, in God's purpose for the Jewish people, and in Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, later on, this is how important Jesus thought he was. Later on, Jesus said this about John. Matthew tells us, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a statement. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Good grief. You know they were kind of like, whoa, 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 I think you're taking it a little too far. Like, how about the high priest? Nope. Okay, we've got one. How about your mom, Jesus? Like, you can't put John above your mom. I'm putting John above my mom. Jesus says, there's nobody, nobody on the planet who's greater than John the Baptist. That's how important Jesus thought John was and what John was doing was to his ministry and to God's purpose in the world at that time. So, John, meanwhile, keeps on teaching. And not long after that, he gets himself embroiled in a political scandal that went on at the time. Now, this is a wacky, nutty story, so you're going to have to track with me, okay? This, one, this one's a little convoluted and crazy. So, go all the way back to the Christmas story. If you're f- real familiar with the Christmas story, you know there's a part of the Christmas story that nobody ever talks about at Christmas because it's so gruesome. 
And that is about two years, maybe a little less than, about two years after Jesus was born, is when the wise men actually showed up. It didn't all happen with the shepherds and everything all at once. There was about a two-year gap, and Mary and Joseph and Jesus are still in Bethlehem. And about two years later, the wise men show up from a foreign land. They've heard of this prophecy that a Messiah, that a future king is going to be born. They follow the star. They get there. They first go to King Herod. Herod was uh, basically a puppet king. He was a Jewish man that the Romans had put in power to rule that Jewish area the area around Galilee. So they go to King Herod thinking, well, Herod will know where this newborn baby is, and he'll be excited about this. So they go and ask him, if you know the story, Herod says, well, I didn't know anything about it. Why don't you go find that baby and come back and tell me where he is? Because Herod's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm not going to let him ruin my heritage and my legacy and my lineage. I'm just going to kill this baby. He's a threat. So the wise men realize that. They go, they find Jesus, but then they sneak out of the country another way. When Herod figures this out, this, is, this tells you all you need to know about Herod's character. When Herod figures this out, he orders for all the babies and toddlers in Bethlehem, two years old and under, to be slaughtered. And he sends his army in. They kill everyone. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus have already escaped to Egypt. So Jesus survives. Well, King Herod, not too long after that, King Herod dies. And Herod's son is placed by Rome as the puppet king over this Jewish region. And his name was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. Now, King Herod had another son. Antipas had a brother whose name was Herod Philip. And then, you see, Herod had a little ego issue. He named every kid after him. So, so then Antipas and Philip, now track with me here. This is where it gets a little crazy. Antipas and Philip are brothers. They have some other brothers and sisters. And one of their other brothers and sisters has a daughter whose name is Herodias. It was so easy to name kids back there. Just put Herod at the beginning of anything. So you had Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and then their niece, Herodias. So when Herodias gets old enough, here's where it really gets nuts. When Herodias gets old enough, Philip marries Herodias. He marries his own niece, okay? So they get married, and they're going along, and then Philip is sent by Antipas on a trip all the way to Rome to do some official business and check in with the emperor and all that. While Philip is gone, Herodias has an affair with Antipas. And then Herodias and Antipas decide, we're going to get married. So they get married while Philip is out of the country. She ditches one uncle for another uncle. I don't know how you would even describe that. Do you call it, you know, honey uncles, uncle husbands? I don't know how you describe that. You'd have to ask somebody from Tennessee. They could probably tell you. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. If you're from Tennessee, I'm so sorry. I'm a little salty about the game yesterday. Going to be honest. Y'all deserve the win. Okay, so anyway, <clears throat> if you don't follow basketball, never mind. So anyway, you, you got this convoluted mess here, okay? I mean, it's bad enough marrying your niece, but now you got one niece who's, had an, anyway, who's been married to two different uncles, and you got this whole thing going on, okay? And they, I believe, history tells us that they end up killing Philip. They just knock him off. So now you got Antipas married to Herodias, and this scandal is known all throughout Israel, and it is the talk. Everybody's talking about it. It's on the cover of People magazine, TMZ's all over it. You get my point. So, so this is a big deal, as you can imagine, okay? Well, people come up to John the Baptist. He's out at the Jordan River still doing his deal, you know, like, Jesus has shown up. You better change the way you're living. So he's out there doing all that, and somebody comes up to John and begins saying, hey, what do you think about this whole Herodias Antipas thing? 
And John is about as straightforward a guy as you can find. And so John's like, well, I'll tell you what I think about it. That's the kind of stuff we got to clean up in this country. You know, he starts in, and it infuriates Herodias. She gets so angry with John for criticizing and calling her out for what she and Antipas have done. So she begins to scheme and plot. Antipas doesn't want to have John arrested because so many people love John and follow him. So Antipas is worried about an uprising. But Herodias, as you women have the capacity to do, talks Antipas into doing what Antipas doesn't want to do. And so she gets Antipas to arrest John and throw him into prison. But not just any prison. She gets him thrown into a prison, into a dungeon, at one of Herod's palaces on the easternmost corner of his kingdom. The palace was found in a town, in a place called Machaerus. Okay? It was out in the middle of the desert. And word spreads throughout all of Israel. John's been arrested, John's been arrested, John's been arrested. And of course, Jesus hears, and Jesus is asked about it. And so when Jesus hears, Matthew tells us what he does. He says this, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, I just want to pause right here before I read the rest of this sentence. Let me ask you a question. If you had to finish this sentence, what would you guess comes next? What would you think Jesus would do Remember, this is John, his cousin. This is John, who he clearly loves and respects deeply. This is John, who he said there's nobody greater in all of the world than that guy. This is John, who paved the way and was the first one to point out and say, there's God in human flesh, there's the Messiah. What would you expect Jesus to do when he finds out that someone he loves and cares about that much has been put into prison? Well, Jesus has got the power. Maybe he just breaks him out or opens the prison cell doors. You know, he can walk out. At the least, you would expect, wouldn't you, that Jesus would go visit John? Maybe line up a good lawyer, the most powerful lawyer in Israel, and have him try to get his freedom, you know? At the very least, you would think he would send a care package with an encouraging letter. Hey, John, I heard. I'm so sorry, you know. Praying for you. Jesus, wouldn't that be awesome? It's like, okay, well, that solves it. He's, you know, you'd expect something like that. That is not what we, what we read next. As a matter of fact, what we read next is one of the reasons why you can trust with 100% confidence that everything Matthew wrote was true. Because if you're trying to make up a legend, or if you're just trying to kind of scheme and manipulate and twist what Jesus was like and what he said a little bit to get people to follow him, you do not put stuff like this into that account. Matthew tells us that when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, He returned to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. Now, you're not shocked by that, are you? Because you have no clue what that means. Neither do I. We didn't live there. So I want to help you out for just a second because you're going to appreciate this. i got to take you to geography class. I I wasn't a big fan of geography. I don't know if you are or not, but we're only going to stay there about 30 seconds, okay? I want to show you a map of first century Israel so you understand the context of what happened. So let's throw this up. You don't have to be able to read this to understand. Machaerus was right down here on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. It was out in the middle of the desert. You'll see that in a minute. Jesus traveled, when he heard the news, he traveled all the way up here, away from Machaerus to Nazareth. And then he went from Nazareth on up to the northern part of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Capernaum. And this is where Jesus began to live and put his time. So when you would have thought, John, Jesus, you just heard John's been put in prison down in Machaerus, you would have thought Jesus would have traveled south to go check on him or to get a message to him. Jesus doesn't do that. 
He moves in the opposite direction, about as far away as he could go. Now, the reason I bring that up is because that's exactly what it's felt like to some of you, hasn't it? When you have found yourself in a difficult, there's nothing I can do, no way forward, no way out kind of situation, and you prayed and prayed and prayed, and it felt like God didn't move towards you, he moved away. It felt like he didn't lean in, he just disappeared. That's exactly what it felt like to John. As he's sitting in a prison cell, and he begins to get word, oh, Jesus isn't coming that way. He's not even sending a note saying he's praying for you. He's headed north, John. It gets worse. You can go to all of these places today. Let me show you what it looked like from John's point of view. Here's what Machaerus looked like. In the first century, King Herod Antipas's palace sat on the top of this hill right here. This entire area was nothing but desert. As a matter of fact, if John, and he probably didn't, but if he had a view out of his prison cell, out of his dungeon, this is what he would have seen. That view right there, not much to look at. Hot, dry, humid, wish they had air conditioning. This would have been a miserable place to sit in a prison cell. Can you imagine? So John's sitting there looking out at this every day. And then he's waiting on Jesus to do something. Meanwhile, he gets word, no, 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 John, Jesus didn't come in this direction. He actually went to Capernaum. Now, you can go to Capernaum today. Here was Jesus' view. John's sitting in a prison cell, and Jesus went to the beach. That ain't right, is it? Just not right. This is exactly what John was thinking, though. Are you kidding me? I'm down here. I've risked my life. I've been out here telling everybody that you're coming, Jesus, and now I've gotten thrown in jail, and you headed to the beach. And for the next year and a half, John languishes in a prison cell in the desert. Jesus operates from his home base in Capernaum. For a year and a half, Jesus goes on preaching, teaching, enjoying the cool breeze, the nice water. John's suffering. By the end of the year and a half, John had reached a point we all get to eventually. He's beyond disappointed, he's beyond discouraged. Now he's starting to doubt. And so he calls some friends. Now, here's the way it worked back in the prison system in those days. When you got thrown in a prison cell, the only way you survived is if you had friends who would bring you food to keep you alive. Because they weren't gonna, nobody else was going to feed you. The prison guards weren't feeding you. The Herod Antipas wasn't feeding you. They just left you in a cell until you starved to death, or they needed your cell for somebody else more than they needed you, and then they'd have you killed, and then empty that cell and put somebody else in there. There were no trials, there was no, you know, there's no way to get your freedom, really. So John's had friends, fortunately, who are there around Machaerus, who keep traveling and bringing him food to keep him alive. And finally, one time when, one, when they show up, he says, hey, I need some of you to do me a favor. I need you to travel. I've already heard Jesus is up there at the beach. I need you to travel all the way up there to the beach. I know, tough trip. But I want you to go, and when you get there, I want you to ask Jesus something. Here's the question he wanted them to ask. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Wait a minute, John. Wait a minute. You're the guy who was out by the Jordan River in the wilderness for months and months and months telling everybody about Jesus. 
You're the one who, when Jesus walked up, you pointed and said, there he is, the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting on. You're the one. You're the one. You're the one who said he was going to pick up and carry away our sins. Now you're doubting? John says, well, yeah, I'm doubting. You better believe I'm doubting because I was convinced. But Jesus isn't acting like the Messiah should act as far as I'm concerned. Jesus isn't turning out to be the guy I thought he was going to be. Because I'm sitting here in a prison cell, and he's not even sent a care package, much less made a visit. I thought he cared about me. I'm not so sure. How could he care about me with all this going on? How could he be God in human flesh, and he doesn't do something for me? He said I was greater than anybody else on the earth. Wouldn't you think he would step in and help me? So, yeah, I'm not so sure anymore. So just go ask Jesus. Would you please go up there and ask him? Are you really who you said you were? Or should we just give up all hope and just start looking for somebody else? Because I'm not so sure. Maybe I got fooled. You ever felt that way? If if you've been in an in-the-meantime moment long enough, you know exactly what John was feeling, and you know what it's like to have those doubts and questions. When you pray and pray and pray, and God is nowhere to be found. So, these guys, friends of John, they travel all the way up to Capernaum. They find Jesus. They look at him and they say, Jesus, we came from John. You remember John? Yeah, I remember John. Well, he's not so sure. Glad to know that. Okay, so you remember John. We're his friends, and he's got some questions for you. He wants us to ask one question. And if you would, Jesus, give us an answer that's helpful and hopeful because he's real discouraged. Just give us something that's going to pick him up. Give us something that's going to let him know that you really do care. We're not going to tell him how nice it is here. We're not going to tell him we found you under a cabana. That's not going to be helpful. We're just going to go back with the answer. Would you just give us the answer? Jesus says, okay, here's what you need to tell John. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see me doing around here. What's that? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, Jesus looks at them and says, you go back and tell John about all the miracles I'm doing for everybody else, just not him. You go back and tell him about all the lives that are being changed for everybody else, just not him. You go back and tell him about all the crazy, extraordinary things you have seen me do but I haven't done it for him. And then Jesus says, oh, oh, one more thing. Don't forget to tell him this. Blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. I love this. I love this because this is Jesus' admission that sometimes he's not going to solve our problems or resolve our tensions. This is Jesus admitting, okay, sometimes I don't pull you out of the pain. Sometimes there's just a purpose in the pain. Sometimes there's no way forward and no way out, and I don't make a way forward or a way out. Sometimes your new normal is what you're going to experience for the rest of your life. John, I'm not changing anything. I'm not getting you out of prison. But blessed is the man, blessed is the woman 
who in spite of unanswered prayers and unchanging circumstances and unresolved tensions and unsolved problems does not walk away because of my inactivity. Blessed is the one who doesn't lose faith in me because of my seeming inactivity. Blessed is the one who keeps on following even when I don't do what they want me to do. Blessed is the one who trusts me even when they can't see the bigger picture. And there's no way forward and no way out. And John sat there and he got that message. And he said, okay, that's what I needed to know. He's the one. I'm going to trust him. And he stayed in that dungeon until one day, not too long after, Antipas is throwing a huge party for all of his government friends. He's trying his best to impress them, and they're there at Machaerus. He's throwing it in the temple right above where John is. And Antipas invites Herodias' daughter with Philip, not with him. Herodias' daughter to come in and to dance for all the men. And she does such a good job. They're so excited over it that Antipas, who's about half drunk, says, I tell you what, I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. You just name it. I'm so, you just, it's incredible. And Herodias' daughter walks out to Herodias and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias, who's been holding on to this grudge the whole time, says, you go back in and tell him I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And Antipas doesn't want to do it, but he's made an oath. So he sends his men downstairs. They behead John the Baptist. They bring his head up on a silver platter and give it to Herodias. And John's work and life are done. Never freed, never changed, never rescued. It was just his new normal to the end of his life. Now, that doesn't seem very encouraging, does it? Aren't you glad you got out in the sleet and snow today? Here's what I find so encouraging about that. There is no doubt that Jesus loved John. If there's anybody you can be 100% certain that God was for, if there's anybody you could be 100% certain that Jesus loved and cared for, it was John. So it means a couple of things for you and for me when we're in the middle of an in-the-meantime moment. It means, one, we don't have to question whether God loves us. Our circumstances are not a reflection of God's character or love for us. They're not. They're two totally separate things. We don't have to question that he's there. We don't have to question that he cares just because we're going through difficult circumstances. And it also means that if you're in the middle of an in-the-meantime moment, while your new normal may be so difficult for you, that there's a purpose to it, that God's paying attention, and that he'll use it in some way. And you may not know until the other side of eternity just what the point was. You may not understand till the other side why he wouldn't change it. But he's got a reason, and he has a perspective. And one day you'll see. Now, the reason I think that's so encouraging is to go all the way back to what I said at the beginning. What it feels like when we're in the meantime is I'll never be happy again. 
Nothing good can come from this, and there's no point in continuing. This feels very real. It's not. John and so many others in the New Testament. John and Jesus himself, who ended up on a Roman cross, don't forget that. God didn't rescue him either. When you look at all of these examples, you discover something very different. You discover the truth is this, that I can be happy again. Something good can come from this, and there's a purpose to this pain. Yes, even in the middle of your new normal where nothing's going to be the way you want it to be and the future the way you envisioned it is gone doesn't matter, you can still be happy again. You can still find joy. You can still find hope. You can still find purpose. See, if you believe the lies, you lose your hope. You lose your joy. You lose your purpose. But your circumstances right now don't mean you can't experience joy, hope, and purpose in the middle of it. So how do you find those? When you're stuck in, a, in the meantime situation, how do you figure out how to experience joy, hope, and purpose? Because that's not easy. Next week, we're going to start digging into that. Next week, as a matter of fact, I'll just warn you, I'm going to talk about what I think is one of maybe the most disturbing truth of the entire Christian faith. But it's a truth that surrounds this idea that there can be purpose to your pain. But it's one of those deals, it's so disturbing. I'm just going to tell you up front. I'll tell you this again next week. It's so disturbing that I'm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't demand or expect you to embrace it. It's one of those things you have to choose on your own whether you want to embrace and believe it or not if you're in the middle of one of these situations. It's one of those truths that if you're not a follower of Jesus, it, it may be all you need to hear to go, okay, they really are crazy. There's no way I'm following a God if that's true. It's that disturbing. So why would I talk about it? Because I have had the opportunity to have a front row seat and watch a lot of people living in their in-the-meantime moments, having to live with their new normal day after day after day. And I have been amazed by the joy, hope, and purpose that they have found in the middle of all of that. But it's simply because they chose on their own to embrace the truth we're going to talk about next week. This week, here's all I want to encourage you to do. Would you ask yourself, especially if you're in the middle of, of one of these moments, or if you've got a friend who's in the middle of one of these moments, what if this is true? What if all the things you feel aren't actually real, and you were able to push those to the side, and you were able to embrace this idea that I can be happy again? It's not what I envisioned for it to be, but I can still experience joy. My best days aren't behind me. That something good can come from this. This isn't wasted. And there's a purpose, a bigger purpose, a more meaningful purpose to this pain. There's a reason for going through this. What if you could look up, you could look ahead with joy and hope and purpose? And what if you remembered this week what Jesus said? That blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away and walk away on account of Jesus not doing everything you want him to do when you want him to do it. What if you could have that kind of deep faith? Let me pray for us. Father, for those who are right now in the middle of one of these moments in life, 
and this hits so hard, and there's so much emotion and frustration. Because they, they know what it feels like to wake up every morning with a new normal. They know what it feels like to wake up and their life's just not going to be what they always expected it to be. They're going to wake up and battle that health issue another day. They're going to wake up and deal with that relational issue another day. With that financial crisis another day. With options limited another day. And they understand what John felt. All the discouragement, all the disappointment, all the depression. They understand the doubt. For those who are there now, for those of us who have friends who are there now, I just want to pause and ask you, Father, if you would be so gracious in the middle of all of that to reassure them that you are not absent, you're not apathetic, you're not angry, that you're there, and because you're there, there is a way that they can respond to you in the middle of that, where they can experience joy and hope and purpose, even in the midst of their new normal. Would you give them the strength they need to embrace those truths and to pursue that path? And we know it's possible because Jesus demonstrated it through his death and his resurrection. And for that, we are so grateful. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.